Jonah chapter 3. So we've been going through the book of Jonah. He's uh, the runaway prophet, the prophet who's sent to go to preach the word of God in Nineveh, and he goes the opposite direction. And uh, I also think he's, he's the suicide prophet. He's out there in the middle of the sea, and it's time to turn around and go back to Nineveh because he's going the wrong direction, and God has sent a storm. And they say, well, the, the, soldier, the, the, uh, the sailors say to him, well, what shall we do? What shall we do? And he says, throw me in the ocean. I mean, if it were you or I, we'd say, turn the ship around. And then, uh, you know, he gets into chapter 4, and he's so angry with God about what has happened. And he says, take away my life. Twice he says it. Take away my life, the suicide prophet Jonah. Well, we're in chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3, and here's where Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. He gets his second try, and he finally gets at least that much of it right. Jonah chapter 3, page 917. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let not any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your great mercy, for your compassion, and for your patience. And Lord, open our hearts today to receive it and to delight in it. Open our hearts to your word, we pray through Jesus Christ, our merciful Savior, King, and Lord. Amen. So this is like when you, when you go and you take a test. You go and you take a test and you totally bomb. And, and you're just miserable until you come out of the test and you notice other people are, are also miserable. And so you talk to a few of your friends and you, found out, you find out that pretty much everybody has totally bombed this test and you're so glad. But then the worst possible thing happens. You know, somebody ruins the curve. There's somebody who gets 100%. 
Uh, so so this, this chapter, Jonah chapter 3, you know, when Nineveh, it's the last people you would ever expect. Nineveh gets 100%. Ah, it throws everybody down and everybody's discouraged because now we've all got to uh, get serious and we've got to learn a lesson from Nineveh. It's like the, uh, the conductor suddenly stops the rehearsal. He looks over at the clarinet section, all 16 of them. And he says, listen, you guys, the, the composer wrote this rhythm this way because that's what he wanted you to play. But every one of you is playing something different and it just sounds like a big mess. Now I want you to play it right. Now listen to this. And he points not to the first chair, but he points down to the last chair, the 16th player who's the lowest in talent and who is the lowest in training and experience and who really doesn't even have a good clarinet and doesn't play very well. And he says, now play that for us, will you? And uh, you know, the first and second chair are kind of looking at each other and there's a suppressed titter from somewhere in the section. And the and last chair begins to play it. And it's great. It's beautiful. And then the conductor says, that's how I want you to play it. If you would all just play it that way, then this will sound great. Now let's pick up, pick up to measure 78, let's go. And uh, wow, everybody is, is just uh, dumbfounded. Nineveh gets it. So we've all got to get it now. Nineveh gets that God welcomes the broken. God receives the one whose heart is grieved over his sins. The one whose heart is overwhelmed with what he's done and with what he is and who has come to the point of hating himself and uh, turning from his Sins, turning from what he's loved and recognizing that he's not worthy and that he's guilty and that he deserves judgment. And all of a sudden, all the things he desired, he hates. And all the things that he's been running from, he realizes he needs to go back to. He needs to go back to God. The person who is broken, that's the person that God welcomes. And that's the, uh, that's a message that's you know, all the way through the Bible. It's one of the central messages of the Bible. King David summed it up in his psalm of penitence, Psalm 51, where he said, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. That's what we need to bring to God. And that's what Nineveh brings to God. And that's what's so amazing in this passage. So, wise people grieve their sin. Because God welcomes the broken, wise people grieve their sin. Those who have understanding, those who have their wits about them, those who see things the way they really are, are sorry, sorry to the point of grief, even tears and uh, misery over the things that they've done wrong. So Nineveh 
was wise. Nineveh was wise, of course, in the world. It was, Nineveh was very, very worldly wise. It was a great city. When God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, uh, both times he calls him to go to Nineveh, he says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it. Nineveh was a great city. And so then in chapter 3 here, verse, verse uh, 3, when, when Jonah obeys and he goes, then there's a little bit more description of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. And literally it says it was uh, great to God. It was, you know, of all the cities in the world, it was a great city, prominent and outstanding in the time. Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Perhaps it was, a, uh, you know, the whole district around the walled city and uh, a large area that was occupied quite densely. And it would take three days to walk through that whole area, the city of Nineveh. How did Nineveh become so great? How did such... Uh, such a massive population gather. And how did Nineveh become the capital of a world power? A superpower of the day, you could say. How did it happen? Well, you know, these things, there's always a a multiple uh, collection of different influences and factors that cause one empire or one city to really grow and become powerful. And, uh, of course, it was the same with Nineveh. There was strategy, and there were the ways that they did things, and their culture. But there's one thing that's really outstanding about Nineveh, among all the kingdoms and empires of that age. In a very violent age, a very violent uh, era of human history, Nineveh stood out for brutality. And brutality was the chief means for amassing power, securing power, and keeping order. And so the way that Nineveh was able to become a great city was by brutally killing and torturing anybody who opposed it. And of course, the person in Nineveh who was at the center of all this was the emperor, uh, called here the king of Nineveh. So the emperor would have direct say over the captives who were taken out of a besieged city, for instance. And so he would have direct say about what would be done, whether he would live or die, or whether he would be maimed or allowed to go free, and exactly what the sentence would be. If it was death, exactly how he was to die. But, uh, you know, kings in, in that period of history, they loved to devise, you know, more appalling tortures for their victims than anybody else. But the king of Nineveh, the kings of Nineveh, just exceeded others in doing this, in devising horrible tortures for people and terrible ways to die and uh, gruesome things. You know, they'd involve surgery and all kinds of things. Uh, Now, we don't want to go into any any more details about this, but they love to go into detail about it. And they not only would write it on on, uh, tablets and uh, and steels and and displays around, you know, engravings that they would post around all over the place, even in other foreign countries where they had their victories. Even in Nineveh, there were these things. But they would also depict it artistically. 
And so there would be reliefs and engravings and pictures, and, they, and we still have them today, you know, showing the, the tortures and the horrors. There's one, this is very, very mild, very, very mild. You know, the king uh, basking and enjoying himself in his garden and, you know, being fanned by slaves and uh, sipping some wine, and the queen is on a seat near his feet, and, uh, and there, you know, the beautiful trees are surrounding him. There in, in one of the trees, uh, sort of a decoration is the head of one of his enemies. So it was violence and, and brutality that gave Nineveh its power. Nineveh was wise in the world, but Nineveh became wise before God. Nineveh got godly wisdom. And so that's what we see in verse 5. Jonah comes, he's obeying the word of the Lord, he's bringing the message, and he proclaims 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And then verse 5 tells what the Ninevites do. Three things. The Ninevites believed God and then they grieved. They declared a fast and they put on sackcloth. And it was all of them, all of them from the greatest to the least. So they, they believed God, they grieved over their sin, and they united as one in taking responsibility for their sins. And uh, look how they believed God. There, there's some of the detail given here, especially in the decree of the king. Um, uh, first, notice that... Uh, they believed God immediately. The, the way this is set up is very interesting. Uh, Jonah comes, and, and we observe that it's a, it's a city that would take a three-day visit. And then in verse 4, it says, on the first day. And so we're all mentally set up for how the, the chapter is going to proceed, right? On the first day, and then we find out what happens on the first day, and then we're going to find out what happens on the second day, and then on the third day, right? No. On the first day, everybody repents. And game over. It's done. The job is done. You know, Jonah starts in and he starts declaring the message. And they declare a fast. And they start declaring to one another that they've all got to repent. That they've all got to grieve over their sins. Can you believe it? It's, uh, it's like uh, J- Jonah, is, his voice is multiplied. He doesn't need to take a three-day journey because everybody else is going in all directions as fast as they can to declare to everybody that they must all join together in humbling themselves before God. So they really believed God. And, uh, and then in the, the king, in his declaration, he says, um, he says very interestingly, verse 9, you know, let's all, let's all give up our sins. Who knows? God may yet relent. Well, of course. How much of God's word does the king of Nineveh have? How many of God's promises has he received? Has he ever been instructed in the word of God? No. But he starts to just figure it out. Because he believes the word of God, he starts trying to figure out what it means. Well, that's, that's belief. You know, he, he stops and thinks, now wait a minute. It's 40 more days, and then Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, why not just today? God is giving us six weeks. He's giving us time. There's a time for us 
to change our ways. And perhaps God is giving us this time so that we can repent and that he will relent of this calamity that he has pronounced against us. So they call urgently on God because they believe the word. They believe God. And they're grieved over their sin. So that's what fasting and sackcloth is. You know how when you get really, really bad news, you know, life-changing news, and the bottom just falls out, and, uh, you know, it's time for supper, and you sort of go through the motions, you go through the routine, and you sit down in front of the food, and you just can't eat it. You just don't want it. You know, just, you, you pick at it a little bit, you kind of go through the motions, but there's no appetite. When we're really upset, when we're really grieved, we, we lose our appetite. We're not interested in food. And so as a sign of grief, as a sign that, that uh, their hearts are upset, in order to show God and add to their prayer uh, a, an undeniable visible token, they do without food. And uh, it's very interesting, of course, uh, that they, they not only uh, do without food themselves, but even their animals. Uh, but they do without food, and then the sackcloth, it's sort of the same thing in, in terms of clothing. It's very visible, and sitting down in the dust. It's humbling yourself so that anybody who looks at you will feel sorry for you. And they want God to look at them and feel sorry for them because they're really miserable about their sins, and they really need God to do something for them. And then, of course, they're united all together. They all took responsibility. It wasn't just a problem for the leaders. It wasn't just a problem for the common folk. But no, it says from the least to the greatest. So the king and his nobles, not just all the nobles, but the king too. And then not just all the peasants, but the animals too. Everybody is joined in because everybody is going to suffer if Nineveh is overturned. And so they all band together. And the king calls upon them, each and every one, to repent of the violence and of the evil that each one of them has done. You know, in a, in a city like this, in a culture like this, the evil, the culture of evil starts with the king, but it spreads to everybody. And so all of them together are repenting. Well, what about you? Are you wise? Are you too wise to grieve over your sins? Are you too well off? Things aren't really that bad for you. Do you need to learn the lesson of true wisdom from Nineveh? If Nineveh can repent, these people who were just horrifying in their brutality, if they can hear the word of God, and repent of their sin, and turn to God, then what are you going to do when God calls upon you, your judge, your owner, and says, why didn't you repent? What excuse do you have left? The curve has been ruined. Or are you too sinful to repent? Is it really beyond hope for you 
And there's no point trying because your sins are too many. God could never forgive you. Maybe you've dug the hole just far too deep and there's no hope. There's no chance. Maybe you've gone past the point of recovery. But no. Nineveh repented. Of all the kingdoms, of all the places, of all the people, they could repent. And God would hear them. And he would listen to their prayer. And he granted them forgiveness. Then surely you can come to God. You can turn back. It's not too late. What would it be like if an entire city repented? That's the, one of the amazing things here is this, this picture of the entire city. You know, the moms and the dads and the little kids, and they're all going without food, and they're all going hungry, and there's some very tough days. Uh, sometimes they're going without water. Uh, it seems like, I mean, this couldn't have gone on for 40 days, but uh, they fasted from everything, at least for a part of that time, and they were depriving themselves for a long time. The leaders, the followers, the animals, the king, everybody, all together. What would it be like to be in a city where people really became uh, aware of their sin and were really making it their project and their job and their duty and they were making it their effort and putting their attention toward rooting out their sin confessing their sin and turning from their sin, what would it be like? I mean, you know, those crooked people over there, you know, those people who cheated you, they're trying to confess their sin. And you see them doing it. And, uh, you know, those other people that you're, you're envying, they're trying to confess their sin. And those other people that you feel sorry for, they're trying to confess their sin. And then the sin that's in your own heart, it starts to look different. And you start to notice sin that you didn't see before. It was easy to cover up before. And, uh, and it would be a transforming experience for everybody. Corruption would end. The police would have much, much less to do. Most of their work would be doing restoration for people who are making up for things because people aren't out there stealing and uh, mistreating one another. God holds not only individuals accountable. God holds nations and cities and groups accountable and we need to repent before him. Well, Nineveh only hoped to escape its overthrow, a punishment in this world. But you have hope to enter life. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a better message than what Nineveh received. So, don't wait until the end of the 40 days. Repent. Turn to God. Grieve over your sins and turn to the Lord. Wise people grieve over their sins. And this is what Nineveh did. Foolish people forget their sins. And uh, so we've, we've been so shocked and amazed and surprised that Nineveh gets it. But the other thing that's so amazing in Jonah is that the prophet of God 
doesn't get it. Jonah misses it. He completely drops the ball and fails. Jonah is the fool. Jonah forgets his sins and ignores them and just tries to go on. While Nineveh grieves over their sins and repents. So Jonah is the fool. Look, uh, uh, chapter 1, God sends him to Nineveh. He goes the other direction. And while he's trying to go the other direction, who is it that's busy seeking God's will and trying to do God's will? Why? It's the pagan sailors. And so Jonah is shown to be a complete fool. And uh, so Jonah's thrown in the water. The, The fish gets him. God won't let him go. The fish gets him, brings him to land, spits him out. The word of God comes to Jonah a second time. Go to Nineveh. You know, in this whole time, uh, Jonah never repented. There's this beautiful hymn of thanksgiving that Jeremy uh, took us through last week. Uh, Jonah chapter 2. A beautiful thanksgiving psalm. Thanking God for his salvation. And it ends with those wonderful words, salvation comes from the Lord. Oh, it's so wonderful that God saved me. Oh, he did it so wonderfully. I was down, down, down underwater, sinking completely. And I cried out. It was just a bubble. But it got all the way to heaven. And God heard me. And he sent and rescued me. God is great. Oh, praise the Lord for his salvation. God saves those who are completely lost. Isn't he wonderful? What a great hymn that is. And, and we could just sing it over and over again. But then, then look at, at Jonah. You can't believe this. Look in chapter 4. The next verses, uh, right after what we've been reading. So Jonah chapter 4, the first few verses. Jonah sees that God is forgiving Nineveh. And Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, praise the Lord, he saved me. Oh, God, how could you save those people? The Lord's salvation is so wonderful and so free and so good. How dare you save those Ninevites? I can't believe you did that. You are so forgiving and compassionate, it's terrible. You know, it's Jonah, you're a fool, you're crazy. You know, those words in Jonah 4, that the Lord is... uh, Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. It's like a creed in Israel. It's repeated over and over in the Old Testament. And where it comes from is the time when Moses asked God, show me your glory. And this is God's glory. That he is a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, rich in mercy. Though he is a strict judge, And he doesn't let any of the sinners go unpunished. He is compassionate. 
So his compassion is wonderful, even if it's for Jonah, even if it's for the Ninevites. It's God's glory. So Jonah is the fool. He gets all the way through all of this episode without grieving over his sins. He just forgets them. He just leaves them behind. Oh, yeah, I was disobedient. Yeah, yeah, uh, that wasn't so good. Well, let's just move on. That is folly. So Jonah is the fool. Israel is the fool. You know, this book was written, the book of Jonah was written to be read back in Israel. It wasn't written for the Ninevites to read. It was written as a prophet writes to the people of Israel. And it's the same old prophetic message that all the prophets give over and over again, calling Israel to turn back to God. But with Jonah, it's in a parable. It's never spelled out. But do you get it? You're back in Israel, and you see the point. Jonah is like us. Jonah favors us, Israel, the chosen people, the comfortable people, the people who have all the promises, who have all the blessings, the people who do things the right way, the people who are better than those other people because those other people, they don't have the word of God. And so Israel was, it was easy for them to take their privileges as being their identity. And instead of being thankful to God for all the blessings of his word, they began to see themselves as superior, as entitled, and they became comfortable. And uh, they were at rest, assuming that God loves them and always will, and they can never get on God's bad side. So Israel is the fool. Israel has always been disobeying and ignoring their sin. From the time Moses called them out of Egypt, and they were stubborn and they were rejecting him, and then all the way through the desert as, as he took them to the promised land, and then they got in the promised land, and God gave them judges, and they would be faithful as long as they were in trouble, and then God would send them a judge to deliver them. And once they had the deliverance and that everything was okay again, then they would go back to their sins and go back to their false gods. And so they would go through those cycles of repentance and disobedience and repentance and disobedience and halfway repentance. And then they finally got a king, and uh, in the days of the kings, those who had been told not to have any other gods before the Lord, those who were told not to make an image of any kind to bow down to it, they made two golden calves, one in the north and one in the south, so that they could go and worship those. That's Israel, turning from God, being a fool. And so the prophets came again and again and told them to come back to the Lord, to turn away from their sins. You know, a, a summary of, of the prophetic message is uh, one of the last prophets here near the beginning of his book, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. He summarizes the frustration of the prophets with the unique foolishness of Israel. This is Jeremiah 2.10. Israel is like nobody else. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. 
Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. So the people turn away from from God. They're the fools. They turn to empty things. And it was the same in Jesus' day. Uh, Jesus tells a story about the, the parable of the two sons. So he, he's telling Israelites, he's telling Israelite leaders, he's telling the religious leaders of Israel that what they're like is they're like the most disobedient son. So here's what he says. What do you think? There was a man, this is Matthew 21, 28. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors... and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. It's the same story. The ones who, who don't get it are the ones who get an A. And the ones who had all the answers, they flunk. So it's not that they didn't know enough, it's just that they were fools. So Jonah is the fool, Israel is the fool, and the question is, is the same still true today? Are we the fools? We who have the Bible, we have the gospel, we know the word of God, we've hidden it in our hearts, We have great comfort and consolation and assurance because God's word has come to us. And we have his promise of the Holy Spirit. And we know about his grace and his mercy and his salvation. And we sing with our whole heart to praise God for his wonderful deliverance from our sin. But then do we just sin and move on? Have we become hard-hearted? Do we not care about our sin? Are we like Jonah? All concerned about someone else's sin, but not really noticing our own sin. Are we the fools? Are we the sons without knowledge? The ox knows his master, but we have forgotten our king. Are we the fools. Are we slow to believe? Nineveh was quick to believe. They didn't get much of the word, but the little bit that they got, they took it to heart. All of them took it to heart, and they took it deeply to heart, and they worked out the implications and the meanings of it. Do we take God's word to heart, or has it become a common thing to us? And we're so used to the Bible, and oh, It gets to be old hat for us. 
are we slow to believe? Jesus applied the book of Jonah to religious people of his day. Listen, will you turn with me to to the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew 12 and uh, 38 to 42. So Matthew 12, 38. Jesus is speaking to the, the leaders and the teachers of the law. And, and he's, uh, they're asking him for a miraculous sign. Um, so he, he tells them, verse, uh, verse 38. Well, 38 they ask then. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But look at verse 41. This, this is so relevant. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of of Jonah. And it was only a few words in his message. And now, one greater than Jonah is here. Now, Jesus is here. The King of Kings. And will we not hear and repent? The book of Jonah is left up in the air. Next week, Jeremy is going to... uh, finish up with chapter 4. And, uh, but f- chapter 4 leaves everything up in the air because the question is, what next, Israel? What will you do with this word? Will you repent as Nineveh did? Or will you continue in your stubbornness? You know, there's an encouragement I want you to take away. You, you, need to, you need to be sure that you repent. If you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you need to do that. And if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been walking with Him faithfully for many years, you need to have a soft heart. You need to grieve over your sins. And you need to repent and turn to the Lord daily. But isn't it encouraging? Isn't it wonderful to see how God keeps working with his disobedient servant. So Jonah wants, wants his life to be over. Jonah wants to end it all. Jonah has failed. Jonah has disobeyed. The one who knew everything has rebelled against the almighty God, his Savior. Oh, he's so culpable, but God is so patient. Isn't that wonderful? We have a patient God who saves. Let's pray. Work in our hearts, Lord, by your word. Renew our hearts. Send your spirit to renew. Give us a fresh start. Work in our hearts and renew the work of your Holy Spirit in us. Father, we pray for our friends who are here today 
who have not yet come to put their faith in Jesus as Savior, would you work in their hearts, open their minds, open their hearts, open their eyes to see him and to believe. And for us who know Jesus, help us to hold on to your word and to hate our sin. Through Jesus Christ we ask, amen.